0: Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, good morning. It's good to be here. And it's been good to worship together as well. And continue in that worship now as we turn to the Scriptures. And uh, invite you this morning to turn back to Exodus, continuing in this series that I have been busy with for some months now. And uh, chapter 19, Exodus chapter 19, and I'm going to read from verse 16, if you'd follow with me in your Bible. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. But I want to read the next verse from chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Just so far. Lord, again, we bow our heads. And the responsibility this morning, Lord, is beyond me. Uh, An ability to be able to do justice In describing who you are. But Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation that has been given and preserved and written. And so, as we seek, Lord, to understand, praying that your spirit would give unction in the proclamation of this word this morning. And we pray this, Lord, that you would be exalted and glorified. Amen. So, chapter 19 of Exodus is actually an amazing chapter because it gives us more than a glimpse into who God is. And so I want to do this morning, what I want to do this morning is I want us to think about the nature of God. You have certain images, understandings, perceptions of who God is, but but how does that compare to what we are told in the Bible, what we are told in this particular chapter of the very nature of of God. What is God like? What is He really like? And so, to begin with, my first point this morning, uh, right off from the beginning, is I want to urge you, if this be true in your particular instance, to eliminate a popular misconception. So, we want to begin by looking at some deception, uh, some things that people believe that simply are not true about God. I want to begin this section by just sharing two examples, two uh, instances of people's attitude and opinion to God. In response to some hardship in her life, one of Carol's school friends blurted out that if she ever stood before God, she would spit in his face. That's a response, that's a a perception of an ability, a thought, ability ability to stand before God. And then, perhaps an example that has really shocked me, Uh, not too long ago, I was shocked to hear that Abraham Piper. Now, I think in evangelical circles, most of us listen to John Piper's sermons. We've listened to much of his teaching teachings for many years. Well, uh, I discovered just recently that uh, Abraham Piper is the son of John Piper who has turned his back on the faith of his father. Now, now we understand that that happens, but this goes even further. It goes even deeper. Abraham Piper is making a lucrative living. He has become exceptionally wealthy off of mocking God and Christianity. He does so unashamedly, he does so brashly, using vulgar language to blaspheme God and to discredit Christianity. In both these instances, and these are just examples, it seems to me that these folk do not think it matters. They believe, as many do believe, that anyone, anywhere can say anything they like in the approach to God and about God. And so to ask the question this morning of us, do you really think, do you think it matters what you say to God and how you approach God? Now, having read Exodus, and we only read part of chapter 19, if there were any Israelites who were of the mind of Abraham Piper, or this young lady, school friend of Carol's, if there were any people amongst them with that mindset on this particular day that I've just read about, on this third day, after they had completed their preparations to meet God, I think their wrong thinking about God would have evaporated immediately, rapidly eradicated, confronted with the reality of the awesome greatness and bigness and majesty of God. Just to remind you, verse 16 on the morning of the third day, what happened? There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. They were literally shaking in their boots in in what was happening in this unfolding revelation of God. You see, on that day, they discovered that just coming into close proximity, where God would descend on the mountain, left them scared, left them trembling In their boots. And surely, what the Israelites witnessed on this particular day was one of the most awesomely terrifying displays of divine power that anybody had ever experienced. Just think about, think about the, 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 the instance, the event, uh, describing it as all the forces and power of nature slamming against the mountainside. What do I mean by that? Well, what do we read? We see that there is lightning and thunder and darkness and smoke and fire and earthquake. Verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a keel, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. What was it like for those people? Philip Ryken, Old Testament commentator, I quote him, he says, The mountain looked scary must have been. It was covered with a black, ominous cloud. Its peaks were charged with lightning. Its rocks were blazing with fire and belching with smoke. The mountains sounded scary. Unusual event. In addition to the constant blasts and booms of thunder, there was the incessant blowing of a trumpet. The trumpet blast grew louder and louder as God came closer and closer. And surely, uh, Riken is right when he says, And Sinai felt as scary as it looked and sounded. Acrid smoke was in the air from a fire that radiated menacing heat. The whole mountain quaked and trembled. The ground under Israel's feet was moving and shaking. What do we take from this? Surely... Everything we are told, everything we read about this entire encounter was intended to inspire the fear of God in the people. They could do no other than fear God. And we know that the intention was realized if you read further down in chapter 20 and verse 18. When all the people saw the thunder and flames and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Is that how you know God? At least in some sense. You see, it was necessary for them, and I'm convinced necessary for us and all of mankind to recognize something of the incomparable greatness and power, the majesty of who God is. To realize, dear friends, this morning, you cannot mock God. You cannot do that. We simply cannot mess with God. Not at any time or any place. And and can I say it this morning? God is not your pops in the sky. God is not the old man up there. God is not your equal. He's not my equal. God is not. Now here's the point. God is not defined by what we think who he is. God is who he is. God is in a category all of his own. And so I want to urge you this morning, eradicate, eliminate, abolish any thinking that places you in a place where you domesticate God. And what I mean by that, you bring God down. You make God smaller. You think you can make God smaller than he is and define God. We need to learn from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? God is not answerable to anyone. God is God. And so in your thinking about the nature of God, I think as well as I'm convinced as we move on in this passage, we are also challenged from this passage Secondly, to establish a firm foundation. A few years ago, uh, many of you, I know in this church, I was here at the time of the publishing of this book, many of you would have heard and even read the popular book, The Shack. Remember that? The Shack, a book authored by William Young. And in this book, Young creates his own version of God there were lots of responses to that particular book we responded here from Central at the time as well but I want to quote a lady by the name of Katie Metler who was writing in the Washington Post and she provides some feedback from different people in their responses and I quote one of them from uh, Joe Schimmel and this is what he says. He says, Young's pretentious caricature of God as a heavy set, cushy, non judgmental African American woman called Papa, who resembles the new agey Oprah Winfrey far more than the one true God revealed through the Lord Jesus, and his depiction of the Holy Spirit as a frail Asian woman with a Hindu name Sarayu lends itself to a dangerous and false image of God and idolatry. Now, we've got to think about this. Is it right? Is it right for young or anyone else to create their own version of who God is, even if they are doing so to make themselves feel better about the circumstances that are unfolding in their lives? Well, the answer to that question, can you create or should you create your own version of God? Again, I quote from the same lady. She now quotes a theologian from Western Seminary in Oregon. He wrote a book in response to The Shack, and the title of his book was Burning Down the Shack. This is what he says. Young's message strays dangerously far from biblical teachings and promotes universalism. The idea that in the end, all people will go to heaven... He told that uh, Christian News Network that this concept is heresy. Now, why do I share that with you? Because I'm trying to show you this morning that wrong thinking about God leads to a lifestyle, wrong decisions, wrong thinking about salvation. That's, that's what happened in Young's book, The Shack. It happens in many more instances. If you've created, if you're tempted to create your own version of who you think God is, or you think who God ought to be, dear friends, you do it to your own detriment, your own demise. It's simply deception, it's self deception. This immediately brought to my mind that time when Peter tells Jesus, Jesus is speaking about the prospect of him dying, being killed and raised on the third day. And Peter is responding to that and saying, Lord, that, sh- that can never happen. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. You see, Peter has ideas, but God has a plan. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so, establishing a sound foundation, we need to be those people who deliberately, intentionally, uh, with great effort, set our minds on the things of God. And here in Exodus 19, we have some Explicit revelation about God, from God, to set our minds on. Everything about the entire scene was designed to convey this supreme majesty. This overwhelming power of God. It's what God is like. And If you remember earlier in Exodus, I know it's been some time now we've been in this book. In the Song of Moses... The unique glory of God had already been recognized. And let me read from uh, Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. The the perception, the response is, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Philip Ruckin, and I quote him again in this instance, Speaks of uh, this chapter, describing uh, to us and giving us a glimpse of God, and he says each of the natural phenomena revealed, uh, each of the natural phenomena revealed a different aspect of God's character. And I quote him again: "The thunder and earthquake were signs of power. Isn't that true? We know that today. The dark cloud was a sign of His mystery, because not all of who God is could have been revealed." And he goes on, he says, showing that there are aspects of his being we cannot penetrate. The fire was a sign of his holiness, his bright and burning purity. Fire, we know, attracts and repels. We are drawn to its warmth and beauty, but at the same time we are kept away by the danger of its burning. So too we are attracted to the beauty of God's holiness, but at the same time repelled by his power to destroy us. The trumpet signified sovereignty. Sovereignty. For the trumpet, for a trumpet signals the coming of a king. And can I say this? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not evolving. God is not changing. Clearly, God is unchanging, has always been, and will always be. And so I want to urge you this morning, be established, be more established with a sound foundation of how the Bible reveals who God is. But thirdly, in your thinking about the nature of God, and particularly in this chapter, we are challenged to explore the rich meaning of grace. The passage clearly communicates limits were set by God. With repeated warnings. I don't know if you noticed that in the passage. Repeated warnings that the people can only come to the edge of the mountain. There there were parameters that God had set in place. Only Moses and Aaron were allowed to go up onto the mountain. Verse 24. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord. Lest he break out against them. Now there's an important question to ask. Were these people recipients of grace? They were. They were. They were allowed to draw near with Moses. He, Moses and Aaron, mediating on their behalf. The point of the passage at this particular stage is to see that they could not approach God any old way. Same as us. It had to be God's way and not their way. God determined the provision for the approach and the extent of the approach. And you'll remember last week, or not last week, last time I was in chapter 19, we considered some of the preparations that had been part of the provision of the grace of God, which pointed to ultimately the work of Jesus on the cross. But here in this particular place, They were not permitted to go up the mountain, and yet, at the same time, there is a unique, extraordinary experience in their meeting with God at Sinai. They were recipients of grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, regarding this privilege that they encountered, that they were allowed to encounter, Moses once asked, and it's in Deuteronomy 432, for ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, where such a great thing as this has ever happened or ever or was ever heard of. Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of God, of a God speaking out of the midst of a fire, as you have heard and still live? Folk, these Men and women were recipients of God's grace and God's favor. They experienced, yes, the first-hand terrors of Sinai, but they did not die. And so as time moved on, I don't think that they could have at any time been in any doubt that they could ever keep the covenant of works. They could not earn credit with God. God needed to provide salvation for them. Uh, Salvation is of the Lord. They would be in serious trouble, they knew, apart from God's provision of grace. I found that much of the vocabulary used is a reference to mercy in the Old Testament. Just a couple of examples. This concept of mercy, this concept of God showing favor to people. Uh, God speaking to Moses later in the book of Exodus uh, regarding his sovereignty. Exodus 33, he said, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God initiating, God giving, God providing. We find David composing one of the well-known shepherd psalms, Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy, there's the favor of God, shall follow me all the days of my life. In Psalm 25, David seeking forgiveness, Psalm 25, verse 6. Remember your mercy. Lord, I'm dependent on you showing this kindness, this favor to me. Your steadfast love, for they have been of old. So, where I'm trying to get to, and I hope you'll see this in a minute, Israel, at this particular point in time, on that particular day, were privileged to experience something of the grace and revelation of God in their lives. No one else ever had that privilege of experiencing and surviving what they saw on that day. They learned something about the awesome, uh, awesomely dangerous Nature of God. God is not silent. However, the glory of God that they saw, the greatness of His mercy that they experienced, was only in some measure evident at that stage for them to see. What they did not know, that there was much more to come. Much more to come in the unfolding of God's Redeeming love. And I want us to go there in these closing moments of this message. Dear friends, there's much more for us to see, but we cannot tear the page of of Exodus 19 out of our Bible. We need to see it, we need to receive it, we need to learn from it, we need to eradicate misconceptions, we need to have a foundation, but we need to see the more. And that's what I want to dwell on. What is the more? There's much more for us to see in terms of the depth and richness of God's grace in the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. And I run right across to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18, which refers back to Exodus chapter 19. For you, now he's speaking to the Hebrew believers. This is after the work of Jesus has been completed, after Jesus uh, has ascended into heaven, after these people had become believers. He reminds them, he says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Exodus 19. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22. But you... Now, we can receive that today. If you're a believer yet today, if you've been born again of the Spirit of God, if you've repented of your sin, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. To the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so I want to close this message today by reminding you and encouraging you in the light of who God really is in terms of his majestic power and glory and holiness. As a believer, you have magnificent prospects. Those who have, those who are recipients of grace, as a result of Jesus' redeeming work, you have come to what he calls the heavenly Jerusalem. You have the prospect as a believer of ultimately dwelling and being in for eternity what is described as the city of the living God. And I'll give you a glimpse of that as given to us in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 2. Where John there is given a vision. And I saw the holy city. This is where we immigrating to. I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Isn't that a beautiful prospect that we have? And in that context, he goes on and he says there will be a gathering of innumerable angels in festal gathering. Not three or four or ten or a thousand. So many that you can't count. And again, we have this glimpse in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. I looked and I heard around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's not all. There's more. The prospect of The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, the firstborn, the assembly, there's the ecclesia. If you like, it's the called out ones, it's the church. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And the redeemed are the first fruits of that atoning work. Each one with their names in the book of life. Those of us who believe. Gathered. Ultimately present in heaven. To meet God and judgment, the judge of all, but those in Christ will be safe. Acts chapter 17 verse 30, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Those who do not repent will be condemned because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's more. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who are these? They're A group of fellow Christians. My wife being one of them. Men and women who have gone before us. Now perfected. But you know what? They are waiting with victory already won in much anticipation of the resurrection of their bodies, also waiting for those who will join them in that eternal home of righteousness. But most important of all, we see here the prospect of coming to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Dear folks, there will be that day when we're going to see Jesus face to face. Having confidence in him as the mediator, the one who opens the way up for us, has opened up the way for us to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood cried out from the ground, testifying to guilt. Genesis chapter 4. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The blood of Jesus cries out instead, forgiveness. Forgiveness, not guilty. How do I end this message? And I want to bring together Exodus 19 and Hebrews chapter 12. I want to urge us as a congregation and you and me as individuals, even with the prospect spoken of in Hebrews 12, I want you to notice in the book of Hebrews, the author never forgets Exodus 19 in terms of who God is. And at the end of chapter 12, he urges those believers, verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What a privilege. What a blessing. What grace. But what a God. And Lord, I pray that you would imprint on our minds, captivate our hearts, by your Spirit, Lord, through the revelation of your word, more and more of the majesty and the greatness of who you are. But Lord, even in the light of that, the abundance of your grace And that which you are preparing for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.